0: Да, вот они All right, we'll begin. Good evening, everyone, Good evening. and uh, thank you for coming. I have resisted doing this on Zoom. Uh, simply because uh, I find Zoom very difficult in terms of communicating with people. And it's uh, much easier when there is a live audience that can absolutely fall asleep right in front of you. (laughs) (laughs) Then then you know that you've got the reaction that you're looking for. Live but not conscious. Now, uh, tonight I'm going to discuss with you uh, Rosh Hashanah, which is coming up. And uh, next Tuesday night I'm going to discuss Yom Kippur. Uh, Rosh Hashanah, New Year. So uh, the entire concept of Rosh Hashanah, New Year, is really an interesting one. Where did it come from? Uh, Ancient... uh, societies, uh, some of them uh, apparently never had a new year. And they never counted years. And therefore they never even counted lifespans. Because we count lifespans in terms of years. Now astronomy teaches us that the uh, (coughs) the way the sun revolves and the way the earth revolves about the sun so it takes us 365 and a quarter days to get to the same place where we were 365 and a quarter days ago and to us that's the solar year now that's not exact uh, it's released 365, and uh, it's off about five, 55 minutes and uh, certain seconds. It's not exact. And because it was not exact, uh, the uh, idea of the year, of the calendar, has been changed a number of times. So, uh, for a long period of time, the Western world, meaning really uh, the Christian world, uh, adopted what was called the Julian calendar, after the Emperor Julian. And uh, that had 12 months. Uh, The Romans named their months according to their gods and according to their emperors. And they uh, made it 365 and a quarter days. What happened, though, is that when you're off five minutes every year, after a period of time, you're really off. So in the 16th century, there was a pope by the name of Gregory that he uh, decided he's going to fix everything. And he instituted the Gregorian calendar, which is the calendar that we have today, the secular calendar. And, uh, it was, it's 11 days different than the Julian calendar. And since the church was split into two, it was the Eastern Church, the Byzantine Church in Constantinople, and the Western Church in Rome, So the Western Church adopted the Gregorian calendar. The Eastern Church till today remains with the Julian calendar. And therefore they uh, celebrate their holidays and they have New Year's, et cetera. Now it's 11 days difference, but the day it keeps on increasing because of this disparity between the exact time and the so to speak, official time. That's in the non-Jewish world. What What is the origin of the calendar in the Jewish world? How do we measure New Year? So there's a period before the Torah was given, and there's a period now, after the Torah is given. And even after the Torah is given, it's also divided into different, uh, periods of time. So, uh, originally, uh, according to Jewish tradition, there was a dis- and that is recorded for us in the Talmud. Uh, there's a difference of opinion as to when the world was created. Was it created on the first day of Tishrei? Tishrei being the seventh month of the year. Or whether it was created on the first day of Nisan. Nisan being the first month of the year. Now logic would tell us that it would be Nisan. The first day of the year is the first day of the new year, so to speak, but the uh, Talmud teaches us, and the Medrash repeats it, that there's that like the world, uh, it, it was a six month waiting period. Allah However, we'll understand that that the Lord, so to speak, had a plan. To begin the world on the first day of Nisan, but in actuality it began on the first day of Tishrei. So, uh, it's, uh, strange that the, uh, new year should begin the first day of the seventh month of the year. When uh, in all other cultures, it begins on the first day of the first month of the year. In the first temple times. So when the Torah was given, the Torah teaches us, <speaking in Hebrew> the seventh month, the first day, Yom Chua Y'Elochem. There's a special mitzvah that I give. The Torah does not refer to Rosh Hashanah as the beginning of the year. It refers to it as a day when you have a special mitzvah, which is the sounding of the shofar. The Torah also does not mention it as a Yom as a day of judgment. The Torah just includes it in the list of holidays of special days and the first day of uh, Tishrei we have the obligation of sounding the shofar. So we have to look at Rosh Hashanah so to speak uh, as an evolving uh, day for us. That has many, many layers and many, many facets to it. So everything in the Torah is like that. If you look at the Torah superficially, uh, so that's what you see, but you miss the whole point because there's so much more there. There's layer upon layer. And that's what the the rabbis meant, Shivim Ponim La Torah. There are 70 layers to the Torah, there are 70 facets to it. The Torah has uh, so many uh, ideas and concepts built into it uh, that it becomes uh, almost impossible for us to grasp all of it at one time. So, what happened was the Jewish calendar the months of the year had uh, no names to them. It was the first month, the second month, etc. And it was accepted that there would be 12 months a year, but there always was a problem. And the problem was that the Jewish calendar, according to the Torah, is not only a solar calendar, it's a lunar calendar as well. It goes according to the moon. Now the sun is 365 and a quarter. The moon is only 354. So you have a discrepancy every year between the lunar and solar calendar of over 11 days. How do we deal with that? So that the Torah provided a mechanism, and the mechanism was that a 13th month could be added. And uh, when it was added, so then it would balance out, so you would wait until uh, you were 30 days or 31 days behind, and then you added the month and you equalized the solar and lunar calendar. The discussion in the Gomorrah, which is very clear, is that you could only add the month of Adar. You could not add a different month. So you could only add at the end of the year, uh, the 12th month rather, Adar. So you could have two Adars. But you can't have two Nisans or two Tishrays or two anything else. Now we have an interesting story in Tanakh. You all know that we have a Tanakh. The story in Tanakh is, uh, there was uh, King Solomon had uh, a, uh, we call him a courtier, an official, that the Gemara says that he was the greatest scholar of the age after after Solomon and his name was Yerovam Yerovam Ben Avot and uh, he was uh, the greatest scholar and he was a magnetic personality and people were attracted to him and the problem with such people is that they also have a great ego. And ego uh, is uh, many times uh, the, really the Achilles heel of great people. Chazal tell us, it's written in the Torah, Moshe Rabbeinu was on of Mikolodo. Moshe Rabbeinu could control his ego. He was the most humble of all people. So even though he was the greatest, he was not egotistical. And therefore, when they complained to him, other people are prophesying in the camp. Eldad and Medad. Moshe said, i and let all the Jewish people be prophets." It doesn't doesn't diminish me. It has nothing to do with me. And if you think about it, we now. Uh, in the United States, they're in election season, and here we're always in election season. If you'll think about it, you'll see that uh, you know it's all—it's uh, ego versus ego, and it's an uncontrollable ego. So you haven't been vote he felt that he was the proper person to become the king of the Jewish people after Solomon died but he was not from the house of David he did not have the dynastic credentials so like all good Jews he made his own shtiebel he broke away and he took with him a majority of the Jewish people Took with him ten of the twelve tribes. Only Yehuda and Binyamin remained with the Davidic line, with Rechavim. And Yerobim, who is this great, great scholar, you have to understand that, what a Talmud Chochim he is. So he uh, made the capital in Basael. And there uh, the Tanakh tells us he erected calves, the symbol of the eagle. Now, before she explained, I mean, the uh, Tanakh is very important to study carefully. It's very important to study. Unfortunately, in our times, are very neglected. Why did he put up calves? So the simple explanation is that uh They became idolaters. They now were going to worship the calf as a god. But that really is illogical. He's the greatest scholar. They're coming off of David and Solomon. What do you mean he's going to worship? So the Mephorshim explain that the calf was a national symbol, not an idol. And it was a national symbol because of the tribe of Joseph, where Yeruvim ben Avot came from. And Basel was located in Ephraim. So that was, you know, you know like uh, uh, the English, uh, uh, they like being the bulldog. America is the eagle those aren't idols that people worship they're the national symbol of the country and the flag of California is a bear so the national symbol he erected were these calves the problem with it is that after a period of time people are not very sophisticated nor very intelligent nor very knowledgeable and after a while that became a god to them they would descend into idolatry because the national symbol was something physical and until then the Jewish national symbol was never physical, it was the Torah, it was ideals, ideas In any event, let's get back to the calendar. So in Tanakh, we read that Yeruba Menavot celebrated Sukkot, which falls in the seventh month in Tishrei. He celebrated it in the eighth month. Chodesh Asher Bodo Milibo a month that he invented. So again, if you look at it, it looks on the surface, like he said, to make sukkot on the 15th of Cheshvan instead of the 15th of Tishrei. But everybody in Israel knew that sukkot is the 15th of Tishrei. So why would they listen to such a stupidity? Why would they think that somehow uh, your of them had the power to do that? So again, the commentators explained to us that what he did was he made two L's, so that what should have been the eighth, the eighth month, Cheshvan, he called it the seventh month, Tishrei. So that everybody would know that Sukkot was in Tishrei. They, he couldn't get away with saying anything different. But that's why it says, the month that he invented. Not the holiday that he invented. Not the day that he invented. But the month that he created, because he didn't follow, he thought he's the greatest scholar, he doesn't have to listen to what any of the other rabbis are saying. So he said, I can make two Elul's. And therefore, it would come out that way. So in that year, it's not only Sukkos was in the eighth month, Rosh Hashanah was in the eighth month, and Yom Kippur was in the eighth month because he pushed everything off. So in Yerushalayim, they celebrated it a month earlier, and then Bezalem, a month later. That was the beginning of the division between the two kingdoms. When you no longer had a unified calendar. A calendar is the basis for Jewish life. And if you make a different calendar... You got big problems. And therefore, throughout Jewish history, the rabbis have tried to safeguard the calendar. When the Jews came back to the land of Israel after the exile in Bovel, Ezra came back. So they reestablished the calendar. not only reestablished the calendar, as I mentioned before in the first lecture on Elul, they brought all the names back from Bavel as well. All the names of the Jewish months are not Jewish. They're all Babylonian names. Some of them are even names of idols. Tammuz. So the calendar was adjusted by the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin had the ability to play with the calendar. How do we play with the calendar? Well, the lunar month is 29 days, 11 hours, 54 minutes and something. So it's really 29 and a half days can't have a half a day. So what we do is one month is 29 days, one month is 30 days. And if you alternate 29-30, 29-30, so then you'll be able to get to 354 days. That's why sometimes we have two days Rish Chodesh, and sometimes we have one day Rish Chodesh. If the previous month is 30 days, so that the 30th day and the first day of the next day are both called Rosh If you have only 29 days in the previous month, then the first day, the 30th day is the first day, so then it becomes only one day Rosh Kodesh. So, uh you also have the ability, there are two months of the year, Cheshvan and Kislev, that are adjustable. Some years they are 29 days, some years they're 30 days, some days, some years one of them is and one is not, Well, some years none of them are, some they both of them are. And that gives you a flexibility plus the fact that we have leap years we have every 19 year cycle the sun and the moon get to the same position every 19 years once every 19 years they're in the exact same position so therefore the lunar and solar years are based on a 19 year cycle between them In every 19-year cycle, there are seven years that are leap years. There are seven years when there are 13 months instead of 12 months. So if you, I don't want to go through the calculations with you, but they're all there. If you add up all of the leap years, and you play with Cheshven and Kislev, Uh, you'll be able to balance that every 19 years everything should come out even. And that's the basis for the Jewish calendar, the permanent Jewish calendar, which was established already in the 5th century and it was established in Israel and it became the universal calendar for the Jewish people at all times. And the beginning of the year was ordained to be Rosh Hashanah. The first day of the year is Rosh Hashanah and that's how we count the days. Now it's interesting that uh, the uh, calendar has always been attacked because uh, as I pointed out to you it's our foundation. If uh, we destroy our calendar then nothing, uh, eventually nothing will remain which is what Yeruvim proved. So, uh, in the uh, ninth century, there was a Ruv here in Yerushalayim, Ben Meir was his name. And he made all sorts of astronomical ca- calculations, and he said the Jewish calendar is wrong, astronomically wrong. And he readjusted it so that uh, uh it was a day or two earlier than the Jewish calendar. And for a number of years, because he was a very powerful man, and uh, there, anybody that comes up with a new idea, there will always have people that follow him. Even if it's ridiculous. We see that in our time as well. Anybody that proposes something new and radical automatically has an audience. So he had an audience. So there were a number of years, I think three or four years, in which some of the Jewish people celebrated Pesach on Monday night, and some of the Jewish people celebrated Pesach on Wednesday night. Which meant that Whichever one was wrong, people were reading Chometz on Pesach, and uh, the, in defense of the calendar, rose Rabbi Nosajagon, the great uh, defender of tradition of the Jewish people, and he really did, he uh, sent letters throughout the Jewish world. He had tremendous authority. And within another few years, it died out completely, and since then, there has been no real uh attempt of an attack on the calendar, though know, the reform in both in Germany and in the United States uh always attacked the veracity of the calendar. No calendar is perfect. There's a movement in the United Nations every year it's called the universal calendar. You know like uh, there's something called the atomic clock and it used to be that if you retired from uh, IBM uh, they either gave you a Rolex or an atomic clock so that you could go uh, completely stir crazy in your retirement. But, uh, But the atomic clock is perfect. Any clock that we have is not perfect. Because the calculation is so minutely off that if you let it run for a thousand years, you know, so then they're it's 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 off. It's just off. Now we can live with that; it doesn't bother us. But there are people who can't live with it. And uh, that so in the UN, they always wanted to make this universal calendar, a ca- a universal calendar that would be perfect. And in order to do so. They said you have to skip a day. In other words, tonight is Tuesday night. Tomorrow should be Wednesday. No, tomorrow will be Thursday. And we can start that way. Well, if you do that, so then the Shabbos is destroyed, right? Shabbos won't be Saturday. Who knows when it'll be? And we are always saved from the universal calendar by our cousins, the Muslims who insist on their calendar, which is a purely lunar calendar and by the church (coughs) that wants to preserve its calendar but that's a constant danger that exists it's brought up every year and uh, It's an attack upon us. So Rosh Hashanah became the fundamental anchor of the calendar. This is when our year starts. And we have uh, a, a rule. Lo adu Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah cannot begin on a Sunday, cannot begin on a Wednesday, cannot begin on a Friday. So all of our calendars always have to be adjusted that that doesn't happen. And it's uh, really a work of mathematical genius how the Jewish calendar operates year in and year out based on all of these calculations and different uh, pressures, so to speak, that are brought upon the calendar. So Rosh Hashanah is a calendar thing. That's one. Number two, that I mentioned to you, Rosh Hashanah is a mitzvah. It's the sounding of the shofar. That's the mitzvah Sayom. The third dimension of Rosh Hashanah is Yom Adin. That is the day of judgment. Hayom Aras It's the birth date of the world, of creation. Ayom Yamid B'mishpot Kol Yitzurei God judges all creatures, the world, on Rosh Hashanah. And therefore we have the concept of uh, the Book of Life being inscribed in the Book of Life, in the Book of Health, in the book of uh, material good, all of the ideas that we have associated with Rosh Hashanah. Now that gives Rosh Hashanah a fearsome aspect to it. Because uh, judgment is always uh, something that's fraught with uh, Danger. Even, uh, even if you feel certain that you're, uh, entitled to win the case, you don't really win it until, uh, the, the uh, verdict comes down. There's always the tension. So, uh, Chasal, the Gemara in Rosh Hashanah, Points out to us the Omadin. And uh, we pass before God, the example that's given, uh, as sheep that pass under the crook of the shepherd. And that uh, we are all judged individually, the world is judged generally. The Jewish people are judged specifically. The land of Israel is judged specifically. There are all sorts of judgments, and the judgments uh, we have to wait to, to see how it unfolds. So apparently, we're not we are not judged so favorably last Rosh Hashanah because we see how, what happened in the world. So it, that's why it's called Yomim No Royim awesome days, frightened days, days of contemplation. And in our prayers, therefore, the Gemara says there are three topics that we have to emphasize Malchios, um, Zichonos, and Shofros. Malchios de Gomorrah says, Gereishat Tamlichuni Alechem. The understanding of the majesty and control that God exercises. That this is not a world that is at random. Now in our time, because of the rise of secularism and its domination of human society, so everything's at random. We don't know how things happen. We don't think anybody's in charge. But the truth of the matter is that uh, whatever happens, happens for a reason. Many times we are not aware of the reason, but the reason is there. And the reason can be generations old. It doesn't have to be immediate. Heaven plays a long-term game so we recognize the majesty of God you know we don't have uh, monarchy the way they used to have monarchy anybody that's a monarch today is only a constitutional monarch the Gomorrah has said that uh, anyone that has a chance to see monarchy in its, all of its pomp and circumstance should do so Because then they'll have an appreciation of what monarchy, what the kingdom of God should look like. So, for instance, I remember uh, in 1952, Queen Elizabeth became the Queen of England. She's been there a long time. I think she's the longest reigning monarch in the history of the world. So uh there was the coronation. You know now, nobody does monarchy as well as the English. There, there's nobody that that even approaches them. The carriages, the horses, the the guards, the the everything that's going on. Because of that, therefore, uh it's a, it's a show, it's something worth seeing. I mean, you can still see it today on uh, on YouTube. Uh, they have the full uh, coronation ceremony, whatever it was, uh, uh, you can see it. So I remember the Telzer Rosh Yeshiva Rebellion Mayor Bloch, who was not a television fan. Had a television set brought into the yeshiva so everybody should witness the coronation ceremony so that they would have an understanding of what Malchus looks like. And so that's the idea of Malchus, right? They're melech, melech al kolohorats. And zechronos. His memory, which we all know is the most precious of all gifts. It's the one that we dread not having, God forbid. So Dervanishham should remember us and we should remember him. You remember his constant memory, not just every so often it's memory that always exists and then there's shofros, the sounding of the shofar which is the mitzvah of the day now there are two times in Jewish history that the shofar plays this role except for Rosh Hashanah naturally one is at uh, Mount Sinai when the Torah was given to us so it says the sound of the shofar got stronger and stronger usually when a person blows the shofar as the person runs out of breath the sound becomes weaker but this is the shofar of heaven this is the shofar of Torah it becomes stronger and stronger Moshe Yedaber Moshe speaks and the Lord responds so that's one shofar that's the shofar of Sinai that shofar of Sinai has preserved the Jewish people till today every time you open a page in the Gemara you're hearing that shofar Every time you teach a child olive base, that's the chauffeur. And then there's a second chauffeur. It's the chauffeur of redemption. The chauffeur of the messianic era. The chauffeur of optimism and of a better world. The chauffeur that inspires us, makes us optimistic about our future. Those are the twin chauffeurs, so to speak. They're the two chauffeurs that we operate within them. So there's a famous uh, idea that Rav Cook mentioned and with which I'm going to conclude. The Gomorrah describes what? A, uh, where do you get a chauffeur from? I mean, you get it from the chauffeur store, but where do you get it from? I remember... <laughs> Well, one of my grandchildren was here in Israel, and, uh, cute American little kid, and we went to, uh, Super Soul here. Well, in Hebrew, he read it, Shofer Sow. So he said, oh, this is the chauffeur store. <laughs> you can buy almost anything in Super Sal, but I don't know if you can buy a chauffeur. So the Gomorrah says as follows. We get it from an animal. It's from the horns of an animal. So Rav Cook says there are three kinds. There's a shofar that comes from an animal that's not kosher. You know, like a, the horn of a rhinoceros. You know, in Africa uh, they use the horn and the rhinoceros for all sorts of things but uh, sometimes they hollow them out and they use it as a trumpet so it says that kind of a chauffeur is possible because the animal is not a kosher animal and something that's not a kosher animal certainly can't be the source of supply for this mitzvah Then the Gemara says, "What about the horn of a bull, or a buffalo, a bison?" So the Gemara says, "It's true; it's from a kosher animal because it's from an animal that has split hooves." and choose its cud. But it's not kosher because the horn is really layers, layers, layers. It's not one piece. It's gildy gildi, Gamora calls it. It's layers. So there's a discussion if you blow that chauffeur but the it is a good but certainly, uh, to begin with, that's not a chauffeur that we use. Then there's finally the chauffeur that we do use, which is taken from a ram, or from an ibex, or from another creature such as that, and that becomes the chauffeur. So Rav Kuk said, the chauffeur of the redemption of the Jewish people, some people will come because it's from a non clean animal. They're forced to come. Non clean circumstances drove them here. They had to come. So he said, but that's not the chauffeur that we want to hear. Then there's the chauffeur of, let's say, the bull. So that's a clean animal, but it's layer upon layer, it's for different motivations. But then there's the shofar, that's the kosher shofar. That's the shofar that we hear. We come out of a sense of mission, a sense of holiness, a sense of understanding what the Jewish people are. That's the shofar that we hear. That's the shofar that carries us through Rosh Hashanah. That's the shofar that echoes in our ears all year round. That's the shofar that drives us. So on Rosh Hashanah we have all of these various components that have preserved us still today. Our calendar Our sense of royalty, our memory, our optimism for the future, our belief in ourselves, all of this can stand for good stead on the day of judgment. And we can therefore be assured that we in all of Israel... Will be inscribed in the book of goodness and of health will be Thank you Thank you for coming and stay well everyone.. Thank, Thank you. Enjoyed mm-hmm. immensely. Thank you. Well, nafas from your kids and grandkids. Well, Maine and you too. Amen. That's right, oh, nice. wonderful to hear me and see you. Thank, Thank God we're able to make it here. Thank, Thank you. I appreciate it greatly. Thank you, Sammy. How are you doing? Simon, Sonia. My apologies. For what? The <laughs> That's a sign that. Hey. We're still alive, Baruch Hashem. <laughs> good night. We have a book. No problem. We're going to have a wedding. Thursday night. After the simple stuff. All right. By yeah. then it'll be good. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, Hope that'll be around. God willing. No, not No, I'm not going in there America. Okay. Thank you so much. My pleasure. A thank you. i here with you and your family. Oh, me. you too. Next year, come again. Okay, cool too. You need to get uh, home? There I am, so take Thank you. Thank you.